For the rest of us, I want to say welcome to the first day of Advent. If you will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. And while you're turning there, since it's been over 30 years, I feel like I can tell you the main idea of Home Alone. And if I spoil it, that's on you. You should have seen this movie already. But the story takes place, it opens up in a bustling house. There's chaos everywhere. There's kids, uncles, aunts, moms, dads. There's a police officer in the foyer waiting to take information. It's just absolute chaos. And then you see this character, his name is Kevin McAllister. And Kevin McAllister is what you would call a snot-nosed little kid. As a child, I love this movie, I wore out several VHS tapes. And for those of you that know what that is, I'm sorry. But I wore out several tapes watching this movie, and as a kid, I loved it, but I watched it again as an adult going, oh my word, that kid needs Jesus. So Kevin McAllister is being snotty to his siblings, he's being snotty to his parents, he's being snotty to his aunt and uncle, it's just being a living terror. So he gets in trouble. But to be fair and to be just, we must recognize that his family's kind of being a putz to him too. They're not being kind. They're calling him names. They're excluding him. They're isolating him. They're leaving him out of all the fun activities like the horrible movie that's in black and white that I looked it up and figured out what it was and I forgot what it was. There you go. That's what it is. Angels with filthy souls. We'll, pl- we'll pray for Clayton later. <laughs> so the family is... Is all together, they're going to take a flight to France in the morning. And lo and behold, a windstorm in Chicago, imagine that, and a tree branch breaks off of a tree and cuts their power, disabling all of their alarm clocks. So they wake up late. And if any of you know what it's like to wake up late, you wake up in a panic. And in the midst of the panic, they forgot that they had sent Kevin to sleep in the attic bedroom. And so when they did a head count of children, they inadvertently counted the neighbor kid. And off to the airport they were. And halfway through their flight to France, the mom, Kate McAllister, said, I think we've forgotten something. Did we forget the coffee pot? Did we forget to close the garage door? Which the dad responded, yep, I forgot that one. And she sits back down thinking that'd be peace and realizes no that's not it and in that dawning moment of realization she realized she forgot kevin that kevin was home alone and seen kevin wakes up and his family's gone and he genuinely thinks that because he was so angry the night before and he wished that his family were gone that his wish came true so he's ecstatic He's excited. His mean family is finally gone. He is home alone. All is great and well until these bandits, these burglars, known as the wet bandits, come to rob his home. It's not until like three quarters of the way through the movie that Kevin realizes, hey, maybe I do need my family. Maybe they are important. Cut back to France. Too many jumps, man. 
Mom begs, borrows, steals, pleads to get home. She's finally able to get plane tickets to Scranton. Gets to Scranton, tries to get plane tickets or something back to Chicago and has no luck. And in a moment of exasperation, she cries out, This is Christmas. The season of perpetual hope. That phrase struck me. Because I hear people talking in our society about Christmas, the season of hope. Christmas is a time of family and reflection. But did you know that during the holiday season, the suicide rate in America goes up? So my question that will kick off our message this morning is in what do we find hope? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. And if you're looking for an uplifting message, you have come to the wrong place. My Bible titles this The Suffering Servant. This is a prophecy, which is it's a poem about a servant who will come and suffer on Israel's behalf. Beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one like from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. For all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before the shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. We need to understand that the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecies. It's not like a letter where you see dear John and you work through systematically to understand what's being said. And it's not like a story where you look for the rising action and the thing that pivots the story. The aha moment, if you will. The part of the story where everything changes from catastrophe to triumph. No, this is a poem. This is a poem that is symbolic, uses a lot of language that doesn't have a direct correlation, And it points to something that is deeper and more spiritual. But before we can understand what that symbology represents, what that means, we have to understand what is the main idea of the author. So here's what we can see in this passage. I'm just going to lay it out for you. So if you want to walk away, now's the time. We can see in this passage a progression of, of the description of the suffering servant, which we know through study is a messianic prophecy. So it's Jesus he's talking about, though he does not know it himself. And it culminates in his glorification. Justification comes through the suffering of Christ in the place of the iniquities of the wicked, which are you and I. That's heavy. The weight of that understanding must draw us to attention. But if we're talking about the suffering of the servant, I want to propose this morning that the text reveals to us three ways in which he suffers. The first is that he suffers relationally with humankind. Christ suffered relational rejection for humanity. Look, it begins in verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I draw attention to that verse because that is a linchpin verse that connects the previous three verses of the exalted servant to the following verses of the suffering servant. And it's not a question that we answer. It's a rhetorical question that your mom says, do you want to get grounded for not obeying? You don't actually answer the question. It is a question that needs no answer. It is a moment of pay attention to what I'm about to tell you because this is super important. It is a moment of exclamation about the truth that is about to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all excited about the exalted servant, but now let's talk about the suffering one and pay close attention. For he grew up like a tender shoot, And like a root out of parched ground. 
talking about the exalted servant. He's talking about a kingly servant. And when you think of kings, you think of mighty oak trees in the forest. Mighty oak trees that maybe you might perhaps cut down with a herring. Thank you. Oh, I felt so alone. I am home. (laughs) But the description here is a tender shoot. It's one of a diminutive fashion. It is not strong and imposing. It is humble. It is lowly in spirit. Gee, I think I remember reading that in the New Testament somewhere. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For I am humble and lowly. It is important for us to see the connection to the New Testament as this is a messianic prophecy. And talking about a parched ground, nothing grows in a parched ground. Or very little. And the strength of those things that grow within parched ground, their roots are not that deep. And they can be, and oftentimes are, just plucked out. And I remember distinctly another prophecy saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I believe Jesus was from Nazareth. But he had not only this idea in context of being a tender shoot from dry or unhabitable land. But we see this understanding that he had no majestic royal form. There are three things that they say in this passage about his form. He was not kingly, but he was king. He had the appearance that we should not be attracted to him. good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. But it says he was despised and forsaken and acquainted with sorrow and grief. So Jesus suffered within his relationships. He grew up in a town that nobody gave any cares for. His best friends, the twelve disciples, were nobodies of repute. He didn't call on the great theologians of the time. I mean, if I could choose to have a posse of homeboys to hang with, I'm pretty sure Charles Spurgeon would be on that list. And here's why. I'm going to digress for just a second. Matt and I are different in our preaching style. And I love that. Because we approach things differently. But I'll tell you the one thing that we are in unity about. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Charles Spurgeon once said, A Christless sermon is like a loaf of bread with no flour. It is missing the, the essential component. 
He also goes on to say in that same sentence that no sermon in your Christ, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have found something worth preaching. I mention that here because I recognize that this is not a home alone sermon. This is an Isaiah sermon. We can talk about and touch on the points in Home Alone that really do illustrate the text. But it's different. My approach is different, and I apologize to no one for that. <laughs> See, you thought I was going to apologize. So I say that because Matt and I have talked about this. We have good conversations about this. He has great strengths when it comes to application. Is where I struggle, and I really hope to learn from him. This is not that sermon. <laughs> So what we can see in that first section of Christ's suffering relationally is this. Christ knows the emotional pains associated with rejection. So we can look to him when we are seasons of suffering relationally. And I say that specifically this morning because it's Advent, a season of hope. And how many of you guys are looking towards the Christmas break when you are spending time with family with just a little bit of hesitation and dread? Is Uncle Buck going to say that thing yet one more time? Is my mom going to have something snarky to say to my wife? Is my wife going to have something snarky to say to my dad? Is my sister going to look at me and go we're the normal ones <laughs> family tension is real and especially around the christmas season we must recognize that christ understands the struggle and the suffering that comes within relationships he was despised and rejected by men but not only that Christ suffered physical abuse. Verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. There are four specific components in that verse that I want to draw your attention to. The word pierced. The word transgressions. The word crushed. And the word peace. Because they're a give and take. He gave being crushed. We took. So he took our transgressions. He was crushed and took our iniquities. But it goes further. He was chastised or disciplined. For our peace, he was scourged, which scourging is 
um, what they would do with the cat of nine tails is a whipping. Another translation, I think it's the King James says, by his stripes we are healed. The stripes of the scourging. Because it would leave these gashes and gouges in your skin. The imagery that is being depicted here is what's called parallelism. It is reinforcing a common understanding, a deeper message. You see pierced, you see crushed, you see chastened, you see scourged. And ultimately what it is pointing to is his death. It is declaring that his death was instead of us. And here's why we know this. For all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The idea of transgressions is a legal idea of breaking the law. We broke the law. And he paid our fine. The idea of iniquity is a spiritual one of sin. Sin against a most holy God. We have sinned. We have iniquity on our lives. And Christ took it for us. Because all we like sheep. It's interesting that he parallels this idea of sheep. You've got Jesus, a sheep led to slaughter, a sheep before the shearers, and you have the people, us, sheep, dumb, stupid sheep that are going astray, each to our own way. The parallel is amazing to me that we chose to live for ourselves and Christ chose to live for for the will of the Father, that through Him we might be saved. And it's interesting to note that the word all in the Hebrew means all. I draw that out because the number of times that I share the gospel and ask somebody, if you were to die today, where would you go? If you were standing before God, why would He let you in? And the answer is, well, because I'm a good person. I do more good than I do bad. But Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all else. Your good is insufficient when stacked against your evil before a holy God. The psalmist says there is no one, not one, who continues to do what is good and seeks after God. The author of Ecclesiastes writes in 7.20 and says, There is none righteous who continues to walk in good. Time and time again we see the word all is transferred to literally everybody it is an all-encompassing thing the weight of our sin has fallen upon him but i want to point something out theologically i do not believe this is entirely talking about sin when you have a fever you are 
sick. If you have the stomach flu, you throw up. If you have the chills, chances are you have a fever. There is a cause and an effect. And I've heard it put this way time and time again, and it's the easiest way and probably the most succinct way I can say it, and that is this. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because it is our nature as sinners. And when Jesus died and took upon our transgressions and iniquity, it wasn't just the things that we did that he took. He was offering up healing to us. And I see that because it says, by his stripes, we are healed. It is a declarative, present tense truth. Yes, we will be healed physically one day. One day I will not have a bum knee. One day I will no longer have asthma. One day I will no longer have blue days. But today I stand healed spiritually. That within me is a new man breathed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am a new creation, the word says. But we suffer sometimes physically because of our own poor choices in home alone the two burglars finally decide the kids alone they're going to tie them up rob the joint leave the sink running it's a calling card what they didn't anticipate was an eight-year-old with a bb gun an eight-year-old with a creative imagination I remember growing up when I watched that movie, I so wanted to be Kevin McAllister. And my parents left me home a lot. I was a latchkey kid, right? And so I knew one day somebody was going to rob our house and I was going to be ready for him. Well, that day came, it didn't work out the way I thought. I wasn't home, thank God. But looking at how they prepared, how they planned, they faced the consequence of their own actions. They suffered at the hands of an eight-year-old kid. How many times do we suffer in our life because of our own stupid decisions? We are at times our own worst enemy. But here's hope. Christ suffered a gruesome death on our behalf. There is no greater demonstration of love than that. But because Christ died, we can live. We can have spiritual life from death to life through profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith and faith alone hard stop we've talked about it in James we've talked about it over and over that works will come as a natural progression of genuine faith but salvation is not linked with works at all salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone for God's glory alone 
and not by works, lest any man should boast. I love that verse so much, I have it tattooed on my arm. It is that important to recognize that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. It's so easy to get caught up because Christ died that we can live. Christ died that we may have eternal life with him. But the third way that Christ suffers in this passage So Christ suffered the wrath of God against sin. And this is by far one of the most controversial passages in theological study because there are so many theories on this big word called atonement. There are so many theories. And we can argue those theories later. But what I want you to see in this text, and if you'll follow with me, I think you'll make it'll be perfectly clear. There are three things that the prophet is telling us about this atonement. In verse 10, we can see that God's plan of taking Christ as the guilt offering is effective. It's efficacious. It means it's set out to do something and it will accomplish that thing. Christ's death restores relationship with God. Hard stop. In verse 11, we can see that God's plan was always that Christ should justify many. I say that because it's not just those of the house of Israel. It is those who put faith and trust and believe in Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. And in verse 12, we see that God exalts Christ in light of his dying for others. But here's where the controversy begins. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. More often when I talk to somebody who has any sense of um, the Scripture who is not a believer, they, they bring this verse up because God's a big old meanie head that he would be happy that Jesus would die on the cross, that he would be happy to see somebody go through such physical anguish, that he would be happy to lay the responsibility of a crime on one who did not commit that crime. It's called the cosmic bully argument. That God is just some big old cosmic bully. And if you read it from our society's understanding that God is love, then I can see where you would draw that conclusion. The problem is, God is not just love. God is 100% love, but He is also 100% just. He's 100% compassionate, but he's also 100% wrathful. The Bible refers to God as an angry God. It refers to him as a jealous God. It refers to him as so many of these attributes. And if we pigeonhole our view of God on just a single attribute without grabbing a full picture, 
we will miss that God's pleasure was not in Christ's death. His, his pleasure, if you read further in verse 12, or in verse 11, his good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. His pleasure was in the success of the effort of Christ on the cross. His pleasure was in the salvation of you and me through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. His pleasure was not in the watching his son hang on the cross and die and shed blood for us wretched people. His pleasure was in the fact that by that sacrifice christ could be made king and that we could have entered into relationship with him for eternity christ died and god's pleasure was in the success of that death it was a necessary evil because god is a just god and he demands perfection a perfection that we can never attain but through christ in our stead his righteousness is imputed to us and we can live knowing that christ's sacrifice was sufficient and that god's joy and pleasure was in the sufficiency of that sacrifice and we see that demonstrated because God's plan was always to justify many. And we see that because God exalted Him. Not you. Not me. Not Himself. Christ is exalted. Christ is exalted. This concept that is laid out here is very clearly what's called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning a law was broken and punishment must be doled out. Substitution meaning Christ stepped in our stead. Atonement meaning we are now right or can be right with God. Because Jesus was punished penal in the place of sinners substitution in order to satisfy the wrath atonement and the justice and the legal demand of god to punish sin one thing we don't always see when we talk about the atonement is this idea and understanding that it is not one of those things where either you choose jesus or you choose sin. No, that's not what it is. It is you have chosen sin. And He is offering Jesus in your stead. We all stand condemned before a holy God with a bowl of wrath being ready to pour it out. But Christ stepped in with arms wide open saying don't go that way come to me through me i am the way the truth the life no one goes to the father but by me christ is sufficient and so we see in this text before us that christ suffered relationally he suffered physically and he suffered spiritually. But to the end, 
that we could be justified. Justification comes before God only through the propitiating work of Jesus Christ. The cross that accomplished and the resurrection that declares the victory. See, we don't want to stop at just the cross. Paul wrote that if we, or sorry, if Christ had not been risen, then we are to be pitied above all others. But because Christ has risen, we have an eternal hope. As we close this morning, I want to draw your attention to two things. If you are here this morning and you are a believer, listen to these words. If you put faith and trust in Christ, these words are for you. We are chosen because Christ was rejected. We are known because Christ was unnoticed. We have a hope because Christ bore our griefs. We are free because Christ was punished. We are healed because Christ was wounded. We are justified because Christ was crushed. We are pardoned because Christ paid our penalty. We live because Christ died. Yet in all these things, Christ did not sin. Let us desire today, as we leave church, to be more like our Lord. When we struggle, when we're hurting, when we're suffering in our family relationships or physically, let us resolve within our hearts to honor Christ, to say no to sin. Not today, Satan. Let Christ reign our hearts. And if you are here today and you do not believe in Jesus or you are unsure where you stand with Christ, hear my words. We've all sinned. Each and every one of us. We are all guilty before a holy God. But the hope that we can have is in the suffering servant. The Apostle Paul wrote and said, I got to stand by the baby. I love babies. Okay. Sorry. I composed myself. I'll look away from the baby. Okay. The Apostle Paul wrote and said this. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It is as simple as looking to Christ. It's not some magic silver bullet prayer. It is an affirmation of the heart that Jesus is who He says He is. He did what He said He did. And I can be a, I can be a partaker of that just by acknowledging that. Let me encourage you this morning, if you are here today, and you do not know the answer to that question of whether you believe in Christ or not, or you're confident you don't, but you want someone to talk to, when we get done, I'm going to come down here. Kyle's going to play a little bit. We're not going to have any songs. I just want a time of reflection. We're just going to have some music playing. 
and I'll be here. I'll pray with you. But don't leave this place with an unanswered question. Don't leave this, question, this place with the, the, the statement in your heart, this is Christmas, the season of perpetual hope, without knowing what that hope really is. Let's pray. God, I come before you and I thank you that you are the suffering servant. That through you, we can have peace with God. I thank you that you have died on the cross for my sins. I thank you for the Christmas season, the Christmas hope that we can have. I thank you for Advent. And as we look to Christmas, the first coming, that we would keep our heart's reflection also upon your second coming. It is in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray.